This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I'm going to start with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Free love is the first and most obvious bribe that can be offered to a slave. What did he mean by that? Yeah, he's... Chesterton is like a, a, a genius like Shakespeare who goes deep into the patrimony of the West. So he didn't say... He never has footnotes. He doesn't do that kind of thing. Uh, but he's going back to St. Augustine who said, a man has as many masters as he has vices. Now, you're talking about something that came about because of Christianity. The understanding of the moral nature of man uh, in a way that the ancient Greeks did not understand this. Okay, so if you, if you ask uh, a Greek uh, like Aristotle, was man uh, by nature a slave? He didn't know. So he had, they, they took the story, I, I don't know whether it's Aristotle or wh whatever, but there's a, ga uh, a prince who's sailing across the Mediterranean, gets captured by pirates, and now he's a galley slave. Well, are you slave by nature? Because the entire Athens could not have been philosophers without slaves doing the work for them. And they were thought to be slaves by nature, fusei. Well, what about this prince? Was He was a prince, now he's a slave. What does it mean? And Augustine cuts to the chase and it says, uh, a man has as many masters as he has vices because uh, you can succumb to the slavery of sin. The slavery of sin is the most important type of slavery in the world. And that became the thesis of my book, Libido Dominandi. And that's exactly what the, the, the historical, philosophical, moral roots that... Uh, Chester is tapping into when he says that. I, I'm trying to think where to begin. Let's let's start with a little bit of historical context. Well, I, I began with the French Revolution, and I think one of the first people to understand this clearly was uh, the Marquis de Sade uh, uh, and the Enlightenment. The Marquis de Sade is responsible for the French Revolution, actually started the French Revolution because he's in the Bastille and he was haranguing the crowd out there, and they stormed the Bastille, and that's the beginning of the uh, French Revolution. He was in there because he was absolute incorrigible sexual degenerate who was a, a, a danger to anybody that he was near, and so it was a good thing that he was uh, basically put in prison. And he would write, wrote pornog the por pornography. Uh, he was a pornographer. He wrote that book, uh, Justine, while he was in prison. And then the French Revolution comes along, and... Uh, He's freed. So now he's out on his own. And uh, now there's a reaction. The Catholics in the West are threatening uh, from the Vendée. And he doesn't want this to happen. He wants the revolution to succeed. And he says, uh, basically, well, uh, what do we do to need this? And he, he wrote this. It's in uh, Justine. It's like it's just popped up out of nowhere, a kind of harangue speech in the middle of it. Yet once more, Frenchman, if you want to preserve the... Uh, this, and he says, basically, well, the, the motion, the, the motion, the um, moving spirit behind the revolution is passion. So we have to resurrect passion again. How are we going to resurrect passion? Well, exhibit the women naked in the theaters. Uh, okay, that'll arouse the passions, and the revolutionary passion will triumph over the, the Catholic uh, counter-revolution. It didn't work that way. It was actually Napoleon who basically brought cannons in and destroyed the Vendée uprising. But he, he, he made an important point that there was a political purpose to sexual passion, that sexual passion could be harnessed. And so the Marquis decided, it's like, 
Ben Franklin, you know what I mean? Ben Franklin was called the modern Prometheus. He stole fire from the heaven. He flew a kite during a thunderstorm and electricity went down into that Leiden jar. He stole fire from the heaven. He's like a Prometheus. This is another type of fire. This is the fire of human passion. And uh, Marquis, the Marquis de Sade is saying it can be used to drive the revolution forward. Okay, and so that's why we need to do it. Uh, and the problem here is purely at this point technological. Mm. So when we talk about sexual revolutions, plural, what is it exactly that we're talking about? You're talking about the political mobilization of sexual passion. That's what it is. They don't say it that way. Sexual revolution generally means we are going to overthrow sexual morality and it will be mean freedom to us. So that is, that is the point. Okay, now, I wrote that book in 2003, and then 2004, the Israelis decided to prove that I was right. So what did they do? It's not in the book. This is going to be in the second edition, which we're working on right now. But the second edition begins with that story I told about Ramallah. What did the Israelis do? The, the IDF comes into Ramallah, they take over the TV stations, and they start broadcasting pornography over the TV stations. Now, everyone knows that uh, sexual liberation is freedom, right? We have movies about that all the time. So this means that the Israelis wanted to bring freedom to the Palestinians. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, there's something else going on here. They know that it's a form of control. To bring it right up to date now, did you know that a rabbi owns Pornhub? Yes, I read that. <laughs> what is going on here? Why does a rabbi own Pornhub? Well, that's the next step in this whole, because I didn't mention the role the Jews played in pornography in this book. I mentioned it in The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Well, because is, is the rabbi, this is a man of God? Does he want spiritual uh, enlightenment? to come? No, he wants to enslave the goyim. And he knows that pornography is the best way to enslave the goyim. That's, Jews were always behind pornography, certainly in America, or anywhere, or in Europe as well. That's that fundamental understanding, is that if you arouse the passion you're breaking down rationality. If you break down man's rationality, he's easier to control. And that's the purpose of pornography. We could go all the way back to David and Bathsheba, even. But go back to Samson. I think that's a better one. Samson was undefeatable militarily. Could, he couldn't be beaten in battle. So what do you do? Well, you send this chick... This good-looking chick, uh, Delilah, or Dalila, depending on how you pronounce it, and she seduces him. What's the net result? What's the first thing that happens to Samson? He's blind. They cut out his, they dig out his eyes, gouge out his eyes. What does that mean? It means, as Aquinas said, lust makes you blind. If you're blind, you can't be a warrior. Mm. Where is this great hero of yours? Eyeless in Gaza, grinding at the mill with slaves. That's what Milton said in uh, Samson Agonistes. In your book, you, you, you make comparisons of sexual norms. Yes. But it's written on the heart of man. Okay. Now, this, this is rationality. So, in a sense, rationality does not develop. Maybe understanding of certain things develops. That's there from the beginning. Mm. So, this, I deal with this more in my book, Logos Rising. Everything is at the beginning because that's creation. 
Man was created. We all came from two people, Adam and Eve. Those people had Logos immediately as part of the operating system from the beginning, which means they could speak to each other at the very beginning. Otherwise, it's impossible. You can't have two people evolving gradually and coming up with the same language. So as soon as Adam is a, a, a man, as soon as Eve is created, Adam says to Eve, how are you? And Eve would have to say, fine, how are you? Nothing else works. Now, the same thing, the same rationality, the same logos is called, uh, part of it is called practical reason. Practical reason is how we achieve the good. And that's also known as morality. And that was there from the beginning, from the beginning. Can't evolve. It's always there. Now, it can decline, but it can't evolve. You can have a better, as, as the world becomes more sophisticated, you can have an understanding of how the moral law applies to situations that seem awfully complicated. But it's already all there at the beginning. And I think just for clarity, we are talking about the perversion of sex, not sex itself. As liberation, yes, yes. And that, and that, what, what you see over a period of time is, is the opposite of progress. It's oftentimes degeneracy. It happens like uh, Wilhelm Schmidt, the great anthropologist, said, all primitive peoples, the most primitive, are the most monotheistic. And uh, polytheism is a decadence after that. What happened, I think, is that uh, man simply found it impossible to control his sexual passions. And so even God's chosen people, the Hebrews, had to allow polygamy, which is a, a, a degeneracy from the original understanding of one man and one woman, which was the story of Adam and Eve. Sa something very similar happened in Portugal in 1974. <sighs> um, CIA, uh, Salazar died. The CIA was worried that uh, the communists were going to take over the country. I was there in Europe when it was happening. That seemed to be what was going to happen. And then suddenly, Portugal's flooded with pornography. It made it into Time Magazine. Time Magazine, by the way, is the uh, public relations arm of the CIA. Certainly back in 1974, that was the case. And they wrote, ran an article on it. Uh, so there's an example. The same thing happened in Iraq. Uh, right after the Iraqi war, Iraq was flooded with pornography. It's happened over and over again. Uh, happened in America uh, over this period of time. Happened in, in in Europe. I was there when it happened in Europe. One, one of the major forms of social engineering in Germany was the destruction of their uh, laws against obscenity. Germany is a good example of social engineering because that's where it started. They were the guinea pigs. You're talking about the Weimar Republic. No, no, I'm talking about after World War II when the Americans were in charge and they had total control over the culture and could do whatever they wanted in terms of social engineering. So, the, the, I mean, what happened right after the war, the, the, the Jew Morgenthau was going to starve the Germans to death. And then the adults in the room said, no, no, if you do that, they'll welcome the Soviets with open arms. So they brought in the Marshall Plan, which lent the money, rebuilt the industry. But part, the part that people don't understand is that pornography was part of the Marshall Plan. Not, not explicitly, but it was part of the plan to corrupt Germany at that time. 
and it started off toe-to-toe battle between the Catholic Church and the uh, the pornography. The United States occupying powers were always on the side of the pornographers because they kept saying that it was free speech. Wasn't that? Let's go back to uh, the United States. Uh, the Jews came over from Russia. They stole motion picture technology uh, from Edison. They went out to California because there are a lot of sunny days out in California. They created Hollywood. And from the beginning, Hollywood was subversive. And you could look, there are books about this, uh, Sin and Soft Focus is an example. You go look, you'll see all of the pre uh, uh, the, the movies that were being made in the 1920s in America were or so socially subversive, nudity, promoting homosexuality, ridiculing the clergy. And the American people were outraged, and they said, somebody's got to do something. They were going to ban Hollywood. They are going to do whatever. Uh, they put uh, uh, the uh, Hayes, the postmaster, um, he couldn't do anything. You have three groups in America, no matter where you come from, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. And at this point, the Protestants tried, and they failed— against the Jews, and then the Catholics come. 1929, the Jews go into debt because they have to finance talking pictures. Stock market crashes. They're in a very vulnerable position. At this point, the Catholic Church orchestrates boycotts throughout the country. First one in Philadelphia, Cardinal Doherty, uh, boy told Catholics to boycott Warner Brothers theaters, and they were losing $100,000 of 1931 money in Philadelphia alone, and it threatened to spread to every big city in the country. So the Jews capitulated, and they put the production code into force. Okay, no nudity, no ridiculing clergy, no blasphemy, and so on and so forth. That lasted for 31 years until the end of the Second Vatican Council. The turning point was 1965, when the uh, United the uh, Jews— the Jews tried to break the code in 64 with a uh, movie called Kiss Me Stupid. Jews are in a bad situation now because everybody's watching television, and in order to get them into the theater, they have to do big extravaganzas from Italy, like Ben-Hur, all the Sandals movies, you know, of that period. But a big attraction could be nudity because it doesn't cost money. You know, you just get the lady to take her clothes off. Well, that's exactly what they did in the sequel. The sequel was The Pawnbroker, and they, the Jews, used the Holocaust to break the production code. Now, the Catholics just passed Nostra Aetate. It's kind of like a revision of their understanding of relations with the Jews. Everybody wants to be nice to the Jews now, and the Catholics lost their nerve. They completely collapsed. Oh, it's the Holocaust. This is art. I know the story. I wrote the story. It's in my book, uh, John Cardinal Crowell and the Cultural Revolution. I saw the letters back and forth between Monsignor Little and Eli Landau, the Jewish producer. The, the, the scene is the black prostitute takes off her shirt, shows her breast, breaks the code. Monsignor Little says, shoot it from the back. Shoot it from her back. Okay, you got her bare back. And then you can have Rod Steiger's face in the picture. Much better acting, much more dramatic. But they wanted bare tits on the screen. Within six years, it was hardcore pornography. And that's led to this day. They broke the production code. And that's what led to the flood of pornography that we are still living under today. A rabbi is the head of Pornhub. This is the situation we got in because of that capitulation back then. It was the Catholics who lost their nerve, 
and, and broke down, allowed the production code to be destroyed. So in what, in what way does it influence um, normal society? <laughs> it derails thought. And thought is important <laughs> for a, a human being because we are rational creatures. If you're constantly distracted, you're constantly being derailed, uh, you can't think straight. If you can't think straight, you're easily ruled. And that's, that's the whole point. Lust darkens the mind. You can't figure anything out. Look, the oligarchs love it when you can't figure anything out. We are figuring out something here. This is important. That's why we're constantly being suppressed on the Internet, because the oligarchs want you docile slaves, docile to their commands. And the stupider you are, the more docile you are. That's what they want. Do you think this has played a, a major role in the current implosion of Western society? Absolutely. Absolutely. You've got a whole generation now that are, grew up with cell phones in their hands. I feel sorry for this generation. They cannot form families. This is crucial. They've got bad ha they got serious bad habits because they've been watching pornography as long as they, you know, for their almost their entire lives. You know, this is having a devastating effect on demographics in the world, across the world, wherever you are, even in places like Iran, which are supposedly strict uh, puritanical cultures. I think pornography is having a devastating effect. When I was in Iran, the people would tell me they'd go down to their, uh, you know, pick up the milk or the newspaper, and there's a DVD on the, the doorstep. They put it in it as pornography. Someone is using pornography to destroy the Iranian culture. You can get all kinds of bad I'm just dealing now with a big homosexual scandal uh, in uh, the Catholic Church in America. Some guy who put himself up as the big Catholic crusader uh, was a homosexual, and his life caught up with him. That's bad. They're, these are habits that are very difficult to break, especially the farther you get away from the nature, natural sex, like into homosexuality, the more difficult it is to break these habits. It's possible. There was another Italian film star who uh, became famous with uh, Tinto Brass in Tinto Brass movies, which weren't pornography, but the, they were close to it. Uh, she had the same type of awakening. So it can happen, but uh, it's, it's difficult. What role has the Catholic Church played throughout history uh, when it comes to sexual deviation and sexual revolutions? One of the main jobs of the Catholic Church, other than proclaiming the gospel, is to maintain the social order. The social order is based on the moral order. So whenever the Catholic Church is strong, they maintain the moral order. When it gets weak, it's it's a back back and forth. It's when the Jews are strong, the Catholics are weak. When the Catholics are strong, the Jews are weak. And now we've reached a situation where the Jews have never been stronger in human history, and they promote their uh, ideology. So it's abortion is a fundamental Jewish value, and, and homosexuality and pornography. Uh, the church has the sanction from God. It's a divine institution. And so when they say God said this, they have some type of authority with saying that. I think you need this type of sanction in order to fight the constant decline in morals that is just part of the human condition. It's just part of entropy. Ireland, we started talking about Ireland. That's what happened in Ireland. It happened in Germany. 
now we have sophisticated people. They could have read my book. This is what I'm saying in the book, that the best way to conquer a people is to corrupt their sexual morals. And then they become weak. They lose their identity. The Irish start thinking that they're white boys. Uh, they leave church. Every time I say a, a white boy, I said, you must be uh, someone who doesn't go to church anymore. You lose your identity. I'm saying all of these European cultures, none of them is based on race. All of them are based on religion, one way or the other. Methodism had a, 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 a significant impact on morals in England during the 18th century. There was a moral reform that took place in England uh, that had nothing to do uh, with the Catholic Church. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at the reformers, uh, they were not—they did not—they were not successful in dealing with sexual passion. Uh, the classic example would be Martin Luther, who started off as a Catholic priest, uh, then got involved in this rebellion that uh, took on momentum when the German princes got behind it and saw they could steal church property, uh, and he had always had trouble controlling his passions. Most, I'd say all of the reformers had this problem. They all had sexual problems. So Luther uh, is, you know, he's getting drunk. He's a drinking problem. He's got an anger problem and he's got a sex problem. And at a certain point, he capitulates to his sex problem. He was involved in basically raiding convents and dragging nuns out and then offering them to priests and bishops. You know, you can have the best-looking best nun of the whole thing. That makes him a kind of pimp. I don't think pimp is an exaggeration here. At a certain point, he failed to control his passions, so he ended up marrying one of those nuns, Catalina von Bora. As soon as he married her, he was writing letters. Uh, her nickname was Keta, and he referred to her as Keta, which is the German word for chain. So my chain greets your chain. And this was kind of a joke among the, these people. He, instead of... Now, this is a man who broke with the Catholic Church. He broke with the idea of sacramental confession, which means you confess your sins. And he comes up with an ideology that is completely destructive of any moral effort, and that is the doctrine of the enslaved will. He wrote De Servo Arbitrio the same year he married Catalina von Bora. And at this point, he said, uh, basically, God made me do it. This is blasphemous. It's false, but it's also blasphemous. God did not make you do it, okay? But now he had this ideology that said God was responsible. There's no free will. And so uh, you just sin. You can't stop sinning. And he said that uh, grace was to—grace uh, covered up your sin in the way that snow covers up shit. In other words, you don't reform. You just— Use God's grace to cover up the vice that you can't control. This had a devastating effect on morality in Germany uh, to this day. They've always been weak in this regard, and uh, they are weak to this day. And I, I witnessed it firsthand uh, in, in the 1970s when I was teaching over there, and the country was flooded with softcore porn, uh, and I didn't know what was going on. But I knew it was having a bad effect on my students. You say uh, that it was bad. There, where where wasn't it bad? Ireland was behind the curve. Mm. The Islamic world was behind the curve. There were uh, these were outposts of uh, religious traditional 
cultures that uh, simply did. Let's go back. I mean, what's the technology? And then even in the 1970s, the main technology was glossy magazines. Playboy. Yeah, that's exactly it. That was the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. High resolution photos were the cutting edge for pornography at that point. Well, they're easy to ban. And they were banned. Uh, uh, certainly in, in Ireland, they were banned. It was known as a puritanical country. As late as the 1980s, Ireland had the constitution that said abortion is illegal. And it was in the constitution. That was all corrupted with the arrival of Google. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, they, they rigged the election. Google was a transmission device for pornography. And, I mean, on that... Technology has played a massive role now in subverting and controlling. Absolutely. Tech, pornography is always a function of technology. Always. There's got to be some type of technological advance. I said, I told you about the Marquis de Sade. Okay, mm. you can exhibit women naked in the theater, but if it's a big theater, it's hard to see. And if it's a little theater, you don't have many people getting involved. That's changed with television, with motion pictures, all of the things that we're talking about. It was all technology. The VCR was one of the main uh, uh, devices propelling pornography. People bought the VCR because they wanted pornography, and then that was succeeded by the Internet. Uh, Dr. Jones, if I might play a devil's advocate for a moment, if you don't mind, and, and suggest that that the objectification of women has been part of mankind for as long as mankind has been. Um, and if we can see it in, let's say, Renaissance art, uh, that, that wouldn't have been considered pornography, surely. Well, actually, I wrote a book on this, too. It's called The Dangers of Beauty. The first part is <laughs> Art in Italy, okay? <laughs> and the subtitle is The Conflict Between Mimesis and concupiscence in the fine art. And the turning point came with Titian. Okay, now, what, what I'm saying here is, as the, the Italians were absolutely geniuses when it came to art, they beginning with Giotto, they created unprecedented uh, advances in art. No one had ever seen this before. Okay, now, the more accurate you become in portraying something like the female body, uh, the more you're likely to arouse concupiscence, desire. And so this is the battle that's going on. Art is, beauty is a transcendent. Beauty brings you close to God. The human body is beautiful. Women's body is beautiful. We find them very attractive. Uh, but if you go past a certain line, um, it turns out it's not beautiful. And the classic mm. portrait of this is uh, Venus and the Musician. I don't know whether you know this painting. Uh, we should mm. be able to flash it up on the screen now. But basically, it's there's a picture of a man. He's playing the organ, okay? And behind him is Venus, and she's naked. So he's got one hand on the keyboard, <laughs> but he's looking, looking at her crotch, okay? Let's be honest here. That's exactly <laughs> what he's looking at. And this, this is exactly the point that they had reached in the Italian Renaissance at that point, Renaissance art. Titian was a friend of Aretino, who was the first pornographer. He took it over the line. A series of woodcuts called Emodi. He wrote obscene verses to go with them. But these are now, again, technology. The, the cutting-edge technology is the printing press. The Italians brought it down from Germany to Venice, 
And the, one of the first things you do is start printing this book, uh, Emoti, which is uh, pornography. So it did have—it uh, uh, did—was a crisis. There was a crisis at that moment in the art world in Italy because the same, cri same time we have the um, Reformation. And so in 1525, the German soldiers didn't get paid, and they sacked Rome. And they stabled their horses in the Sistine Chapel. And I guarantee you, they had never seen anything like Michelangelo's Last Judgment in Germany. And they were shocked, and they were scandalized. And when they got back to Germany, you had the reaction, which is iconoclasm. This mm. is the crisis right there. Pornography on the one hand, heading in the opposite direction. Iconoclasm is the inchoate reaction against what they felt was pornography. Even some of the... Uh, Cardinals were scandalized by Michelangelo's last, last judgment. I'm saying the church had to steer a, a course between Scylla and Charybdis, between pornography on the one hand and iconoclasm on the other, and they did it with the, uh, the Council of Trent, and the man, the genius who brought this all together was Rubens. He, ra he, saved, he saved pain. He saved art from both of those extremes. He became a rich man because the iconoclast had destroyed all of these churches in the Spanish Netherlands. He got to redesign them, repaint them, became, uh, made a lot of money on that regard, uh, and stopped both directions, okay? Held it back from pornography, uh, justified it in the lives of the iconoclast. We're only referring to the female form, though. I mean, at, at that time, they were also doing uh, the male form, for example, David. Brilliant example, yes. I met a Muslim lady in London, and she said to me, what the hell is going on here? You got this naked guy, 19-foot-tall naked guy standing in the middle of town. What are, you, what are you guys? Are you Christians crazy? I mean, this is pretty much the Islamic react because they obviously they have no representational art in Islam. So you got this naked guy standing in the middle of town. Are you all a bunch of queers? Well, I said, I said, look, the beauty here is largely, first of all, I don't see, and I'm not personally attracted to the male form, sexually attracted <laughs> to it. That's not my problem. Um, so I can look at the male form kind of impartially, but the form in marble, in a sense, liberates you from concupiscence. This is what marble does, whether it's the female form or the male form. You can contemplate the beauty without your passions being aroused. And that's not the case necessarily with art, and it is certainly not the case with film, which is, lends itself very much to pornography. I was invited to Iran. I have to go to Chicago. When I get to Chicago, there's a 10-story high picture of a woman in her underwear, okay? And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders get on the plane, and then I arrive in Tehran, and all the women are wearing chatters, Uh completely covered up. You know, not the face, but Iranian women spend more money on makeup than any uh, other women in the world, because it's the only asset that they can really—they have to make the best of that. And so I get interviewed by the New York Times, and the guy says to me, what's your impression? And I said, desexualization. I finally was in a culture where they put the sex back into the private sphere because I'd grown up in a culture that was always transgressive for my entire life. I, I mean, the boundaries changed, but it never 
Stop being transgressive. Always trying to push, because that's what Jews do. You're always trying to push it a little bit further, you know, a little bit more here, a little bit more there, and so on and so forth. Dr. Jones, how chaotic have these revolutions been? Uh, let me give you an example. If we look at some of the Renaissance art now, it's just ridiculous to think that it's pornographic. But at the time, it would have, it might have been considered that. So I'm just wondering about how these these shifts, these paradigms, um, how these things affect where we are. Okay, uh, Mark Twain, uh, Titian's famous painting, the Venus Dorbino. Mark Twain went to Italy. He said, "This is the filthiest picture I've ever seen in my life," and I I tried to make the point that this is the essence of the Venus Dorbino, which is this naked, the lady lying naked there, is the fact that she's looking you in the eye. This is the, the psychological genius of Titian. He was a genius when it comes to the psychology of sex. So she's looking you in the eye and she's saying, what's it going to be? Love or lust? You know, and Mark Twain missed it completely because he came from a, a puritanical culture. Uh, that's not bad. It's good to keep these things uh undercover, okay? Uh, and if you violate them, there is some sort of consolation, which is uh, you get accustomed to it. And so you just don't notice it anymore. And that saves you from the constantly uh, being uh, aroused, you know, or disturbed uh, sexually by, by people who aren't wearing enough clothing. So I think that's, that's the compensation. It's that continuous drive to then outdo the previous. Right. That's exactly part of the transgressive nature of pornography. And so at a certain point, there's only, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> Human sexuality is what it is. But you're not satisfied because you've been so jaded by watching some that now it has to go away from sexuality into violence, for example. Mm or beyond nature into homosexuality or, and all those type of things. And at that point, you, you start to lose your audience. I mean, just to, to really, this is the whole point of transgenderism. This yeah. is really unattractive. That, like, look at the, the, uh, the guy in the secretary, the Jew, the fat Jew who thinks he's a woman. And I forget what his name is at this point, but you dress up like that, you're repulsive. And everybody knows you're repulsive. And it has the opposite effect that the whole sexual liberation was having up till that time. It doesn't work anymore. What role has the feminist movement and shall we say women's liberation had on sexual revolutions? Okay, so sexual, uh, sexual revolution takes place in the 1960s. All these, uh, it's a kind of left-wing phenomenon, so all the liberated ladies all have sex with their liberated boyfriends, and it turns out badly. And they have, uh, they, the boys uh, uh, break their hearts, or they give them a venereal disease or something like that. This is the trajectory of film in the 1970s, which sexual liberation, Deep Throat, uh, led to Alien. Alien is a sequel to Deep Throat. Uh, because it's about, they're both about oral sex, except that alien now, the monster can kill you. And this is what they have. So this is what happened over this period of time. And the, the defensive reaction, like the scar tissue that formed here was known as feminism, uh, largely uh, driven by abortion, actually. 
women who got involved and then they got pregnant and then got panicked and then they had an abortion and they can't live with their, the fact that they killed their children. So they have to form a movement, a political movement that will make them feel better. So they march down the street all together, you know, sisterhood is powerful, God didn't strike me dead and I feel a little better for the next 15 minutes uh, so I don't have to get drunk to calm my conscience. That's feminism. It got weaponized by the Democratic Party. It's a Jewish phenomenon. It's basically Marxism transposed into the sexual realm. And then there was a crisis then. So I don't know whether you remember this, but like in the late 70s, there suddenly the feminists started talking out against pornography. Andrea Dworkin was one. She was a Jewish feminist. She, had, she wrote things about sexuality that lead you to believe she had some really damaging sexual experiences that she never got over. She used to describe uh, marriage as rape. Uh, that became famous. All of this goes back to sleeping with your liberated boyfriend, you know, the bad experiences you had. So it looks as if, okay, so what? Politics makes strange bedfellows. So the Catholics who are against pornography, let's get together with the feminists that uh, are against pornography. But who rushes in to break up that play? Who rushes in, and just as the ball is just about to catch the ball, she knocks it down? Who did it? Betty Friedan. Betty Goldberg. Oh, wait a minute. Why does she have a skin? Because the Jews are the promoters of pornography, and Betty Friedan's first allegiance is to the Jews, and she's not going to ruin one of their one of their games. And so she comes out with pro-pornography, divides the feminist movement, and the whole thing just kind of fizzles. I just wonder if there is a way out. God is in charge here. God is in charge of human history, and Hegel said this happens with the cunning of reason. He calls it the cunning of reason, die Liste Vernunft, where you bring about the exact opposite intention. So I saw this in 1919 with No Fap November. These I remember guys, that. Okay, now I, when I came out with the book, it was 2003, this guy is crazy. Who is this guy? Ignore this guy. Well, suddenly you had a whole generation that had been raised on pornography, and I didn't have to explain to them that they were slaves of their passion. And because they're human beings, they don't like being slaves. They want to be rational creatures. And so they rose up spontaneously. So you know what Rolling Stone said about them? Call them anti-Semites. <laughs> no. No, I'm dead serious. <laughs> you let the cat out of the bag, fellas. That's what happened. So this was considered subversive by the—oh, uh, wait a minute. They were the counterculture, weren't they? No, they're all operatives to keep people under control. How does one try and change societal behavior? Do we do it from the bottom up or from the top down? Start with yourself. Start with yourself. You have to be able to control your passions. If you can't control your passions, what, what good are you to anything else? If you, if you try to change society without controlling your passions, you're known as a revolutionary, and you will make things worse. And so what do I say? You know, if you've got a pornography, a masturbation addiction, you have to solve that problem. And if you do solve that problem, I'll tell you what will happen to you. Your mind will clear up. You will see things more clearly. And you'll be able to advance toward the goals uh, that you need to achieve if you want a successful life. And the first goal is finding a member of the opposite sex to marry. So that makes you—not only do you uh, become more attractive to the opposite sex when you get over this addiction, 
you're able to see more clearly what you need to do. And you will, you will become more attractive to other people uh, when you do this. And that will lead to marriage. And that's for normal, for the overwhelming majority of the human race, that is the only path to success in life. I'm not saying you have to get there. Plenty of people, like, no Catholic priest gets married. I know that and so on and so forth. You can be a saint without getting married. But for the broad majority of the human race, the plan that God established is to get married and have children. And that will lead you, you will have a successful life and you can achieve a successful life. And it's probably desirable to do it early on in life. Absolutely. Think one of the things that saved my ass from a lot of trouble was getting married when I was 21. And my wife was 20 years old. And that was 1969. And so we went to Woodstock on our honeymoon. It shows you, we went to Woodstock. It was one, one week after we got married. And I heard, oh, there's a concert. Okay, let's go to the concert. Uh, if, if it was a sin to intend, then we committed the sin, but we got stuck in traffic and never made it. But I mean, that just shows you the poles in my life. At the very moment that people, my generation is being lured into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I got married. And it saved me a lot of uh, heartache uh, that I saw in other people. I suppose uh, an extension of my previous question is uh, the, the tug of war between um, individual freedoms and social cohesion, I guess. Well, there's no, there's no dichotomy here because freedom only exists in rationality. We are rational creatures. We can only be free if we're rational. And sin is irrationality. Mm. That's, you're going against the plan, and you will suffer severe consequences. Lust will darken your mind, and you'll end up in places you had no intention of ending up uh, because you can't see your way. You'll be like Samson with his eyes gouged out, and that's not going to lead to a successful life. So there's no—society there's, has to be based on rationality. You have to have justice. You cannot violate the law, the moral law, as we are seeing uh, being violated right now in Gaza by the Israeli military is killing women and children. You cannot do that, okay? Uh, and if everybody is being rational, then you're going to have a successful society. It's that simple. No, no dichotomy, no conflict here. The theological explanation is the fall of Adam. Adam was a perfectly rational creature who had no trouble subduing his passions and conforming them to reason, and he deliberately violated that contract by, by going against God's law. And he was deranged after that. What you mean by original sin is the fact that uh, you can no longer control your passions. Rationality is a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. Uh, but it's possible now. It's possible because Jesus Christ uh, redeemed uh, the human race, and he now makes grace possible so that you can now have a successful life. It's possible in a way that, let's say, the Greeks never understood. If you look at Greek tragedy, that is not a redeemed world. So the Bacchae, Euripides, well, the best example of this, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. So, the, you know, you've got no wind in your sails. I guess you got to sacrifice your daughter. You sacrifice your daughter, your wife is going to kill you and kill everyone. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. That is before these people didn't know about uh, 
Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brought about, which is now available. Pornography is absolutely massive. Yeah, I don't know what happened, though. Something has happened uh, that nobody's making money on pornography, it seems. Apparently, the cutting edge now is OnlyFans, where you have to have original, you know, like uh, contracts with people who become obsessed with you, and then they pay you to take off your clothes or engage in sexual activity. I think the era of mass uh, pornography, let's say mass-produced pornography in uh, Northridge, uh, that took place with the VCR era, I, I think it's over. I think it's changing. I don't know whether anybody can make money. Uh, I think you can make money in OnlyFans. I'm not sure that uh, Solomon, Rabbi Solomon Friedman is making any money at, at Pornhub. I'm not, I think that there's a crisis there. That's why he ended up uh, trying to save it, because it's a Jewish form of control. But I, I think it was a financial—there was a financial crisis there. So what happened when uh, uh, you have— uh, 1965, okay, you break the code, it's in the air, you know, you know, you now are being offered options that you were never offered before. This seems plausible. Sexual vice seems plausible in a way that it didn't before. Certainly sodomy. Sodomy was something, no, it was disgusting. You know, it was people like, you know, hitchhiking home from school and some queer picks you up and propositions you. It was these, that, and it had to be turned into something heroic. And that's what this cultural revolution was about, making it seem plausible. Everyone was affected, and I'm saying priests were affected too. They have every, so what happened in the initial phase is basically uh, most people are heterosexual, including most priests. And so they fall in love with a nun and uh, over summer courses at Notre Dame University, and they run off and get married. And that, you have to leave. You can't have your wife and be pastor. So all the heterosexuals had to leave. Well, guess who? You what population do you concentrate then when the heterosexuals leave? The homosexuals become dominant. And some of those people are pedophiles, and then somebody made a lot of money about exposing pedophiles in the Catholic Church, where it's no more common than in any other realm. If you took uh, the post postal workers, you would find the same, probably the same level, probably less, more uh, sexual deviancy there. If you go to something like the Boy Scouts, it goes off the charts. You know what I mean? So everyone was affected in the same way. They started acting out, and a small percentage of them had these twisted desires, and they ended up causing a lot of damage in the Catholic Church. How do you see the trajectory, Dr. Jones? Okay, so if you succumb and you don't take advantage of God's grace, you will die, and you will pass out of existence, and you probably won't have any offspring and the world will be replenished by the people who did have offspring. And so there's just going to be this regenerative effect. In order to be in the game, you have to exist. So I said this before, my oldest son went to Harvard. What's the main criterion for getting into Harvard? It's existence. If you don't exist, you can't go to Harvard. It's true, right? You can't refute that. What happened? Well, the people, the WASP ruling class got involved in contraception, which is sexual deviance, and they didn't have children. 
So they had to, you know, rake through the rubbish in Indiana, come up with this Catholic boy who had high SAT scores, and he went to Harvard because he existed. Do you see how this changes over this period of time? This will change the composition. So on the one hand, you have decay, and the other hand, you have rebirth coming up from, from the bottom. So they, he got together with other Catholics, and they created a kind of a moral protest against what was going on at Harvard. At the same time, the Jews were cheating to get in, and eventually they took over Harvard. But th this is the type of competition. You, you can't compete unless you exist. If you get involved with contraception and abortion, which are two forms of sexual deviance, you will not exist. Your, your seed will die out, and you'll be replaced by the people who do, which is what we're seeing in England now, right? Muslims have children. The English don't—England will become a Muslim country, whether you like it or not. Well, I mean, just on that, I mean, how do you compare these differences between, let's say, authoritarian regimes, democratic regimes, you know, West versus East, etc.? There's one criterion. Is does the regime follow the moral law? If you're authoritarian in, proposing, in imposing the moral law, that's a good thing. If you're not, uh, if you don't, there's no social progress outside the moral law. If you are remiss, you as a ruler are remiss, you will go out of existence. You will do your, your, your country a disservice. The classic example of this is Queen Elizabeth. God bless her. You know, 90 years old and she parachutes into Wembley Stadium holding that pocketbook. Just amazing. I saw it with my own eyes, okay? But what didn't she do? She's the head of the Church of England. She's the Pope of England. Didn't protest abortion, didn't protest sodomy, did nothing about contraception, and the English now are going out of existence, and they're being replaced by Muslims. That was a failing on her part. That's what's happening. If you turn away from the moral law, you will disappear. And decadence will uh, be the sign. Now, the difference is that uh, the man who objected to the Weimar Republic was known as Adolf Hitler, and he was swept into power, uh, not so much because he—he he certainly talked about the Jews, but the, the thing that lent a plausibility was the fact that the Jews were—the Bolsheviks were Jews, and they tried to take over Germany at that point, and they were spreading sexual decadence through people like Magdus Hirschfeld a Jewish homosexual that Hitler should have invented even if uh, if he didn't exist. So this what gave Hitler plausibility in the minds of, of the Catholics at that point. That's the difference. We have yet to find England. Who's going, who's going to step forward in England? I don't see anybody on the horizon. I don't see anybody on the horizon here in America. There was a protest, uh, the moral majority, that was the Protestant protest in the 80s. Where are they? They're all dead now. And, and there was an Achilles heel there because they were all Zionist. So there was always a hidden agenda with these people, like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, people like that. And God is always busy turning evil into good in ways that you cannot understand. So you know, when it's an American—like, I just did an interview with uh, Michael Scheuer, a hero of mine, a CIA guy who stood up in Congress and said the Israel lobby controls uh, our government. Okay, so I'm great. I'm going to speak with Michael Scheuer. Michael, tell me about the adults in the room at the CIA. Aren't they going to take control? Aren't you going to lead? The no, he said there aren't any. Okay, well, that's depressing. But that doesn't hand for God. 
I mean, God is in charge of human history, and oftentimes the, the people who are fighting God bring about his plan. That's called the cunning of reason. Hegel was a genius. Die List der Vernunft. So the neocons attack Iraq and destroy Saddam Hussein. And what do they bring about? The Shia crescent. <laughs> the Shia take over Iraq. And now Iran can send weapons from uh, through Iraq, through Syria, and Hamas has all of these uh, Iranian weapons. That's not what the neo, the Jews intended, but that's what God intended. The same thing with now you bring all these Muslims into England to destroy their culture. Well, it turns out the Muslims like Jews less than the natives do. And you have a million Muslims on the street protesting against what's going on in Gaza. That's the cunning of reason. The Jews intended it. But as Joseph said, the evil you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. This is the worst situation in my—I I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis when the lines at the confessional were long because everybody thought there was going to be nuclear war. This is worse than that <laughs> because there are no adults in the room. John F. Kennedy was an adult. Khrushchev was an adult. You had all the, the, the people with their hands on the levers of power were adults and could work with each other, and the CIA murdered Kennedy mm. with the help well, of the Israelis. Yeah, I mean, JFK wanted to actually uh, dismantle the CIA. That's right, and he was going to bring an end to the Cold War, and they didn't like mm. that because that's where mm. all their money was coming from. How can I uh, follow your work? Go to culturewars.com. Uh, fidelitypress.org. Both of these will give you access. All my books are there, the videos, and so on and so forth. So culturewars.com, uh, fidelitypress.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.